Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 19th, 2020, and this is show number 793. Well, I am super excited about this week's chit chat across the pond. My guest was Doug Kay of the Conversations Network. It's quite likely you've never even heard of the Conversations Network, but this service that Doug and others built created the second podcast ever produced. In our interview, Doug talks about how that happened and what the network's goals were and how they were achieved. His vision of a medium that allowed open access to information, I think, was foundational to the attitude amongst independent podcasters even today. The Conversations Network managed a worldwide distributed team of part-time and essentially volunteer people, which was awesome, but which caused audio levels to be all over the map. Doug talks about how annoying it was to be listening to a podcast in your car and have it constantly be having constantly to turn the volume up and down as the speaker changed. He and his team decided that needed to be fixed. He tells us the story of how Bruce Sharp, a mathematician, and his son Malcolm, a developer, wrote the application entitled The Levelator for the Mac, Windows, and Linux. This tool has been a mainstay of podcasters for close to 15 years now, and like everything else Doug creates, it's always been free. I got Doug to give us more detail than, than I've known before on how it does its magic. The Levelator is a fascinating story unto itself, since twice now it has been rendered unusable for Mac users because of changes to fundamental parts of the Mac operating system, and yet every time it rises like a phoenix from the ashes to live again, not once, but twice. Doug is a fascinating person, and I enjoyed absolutely every single minute of this conversation. You can find the episode in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, or you can listen to it right over at podfeet.com. But that is not all. At the end of our conversation, Doug explained that his love now is photography and that he runs a local photo club. I took a look at Doug's personal portfolio at DougK.com, and I got to say, I was absolutely blown away by his work. You know how a lot of photographers have like a theme or a look to the work, so after a while it kind of starts all look the same, like they do all black and white or they do all street photography or it's like, I don't know, all pictures of food? Well, there are not two photos in Doug's entire portfolio that are anything like any of the rest. Every single photo I brought up made me go, whoa. I mean, I'm serious. DougK.com. Just go lose yourself in that site. It is just amazing. His photography is fantastic. So I suggested to Bart that Doug might be a great guest for his Let's Talk Photography podcast. Bart's been doing a series within a series where he gets photographers to come on and evangelize a photographer they admire. Doug was on this week's Let's Talk Photography, and it was it was amazing. Doug talked about David Burnett, and I'm not even going to try to tell you how crazy cool Mr. Burnett's photography is, because you have to hear Doug explain it. Doug also talks about his own crazy cameras and printing experiments. If you don't get enough Doug K listening to him talk about the early days of podcasting on Chit Chat Across the Pond, definitely give a listen to Let's Pho- Talk Photography episode 82 over at lets-talk.ie. Like many people, Ryan, also known as Dopey One in the chat room, has gotten behind in his podcast listening because he's at home now. He's just heard the 15-year anniversary show that happened back in May but luckily he decided that it was better late than never to send in a recording of his thoughts about the show. 
This absolutely made my day. Hey, Allison. This is Ryan, dopey one in the chat sometimes. I am a few weeks behind in my listening, so I'm sorry that I am late. But I wanted to say a big thank you to you and Bart and Steve for making the show. It's been a uh, learning and fun experience for me. You and Bart have inspired me to make some better decisions about security and have inspired me to build my own router so that I can support VLANs and make my IoT devices run on their own VLAN, make a VLAN for my visitors so they're on their own VLAN, and then provide a VLAN for my family. Um, Other inspirations have come through some of your software recommendations Anyway, mainly I just wanted to say thank you. I haven't been as long a listener as some, but I still feel like I've been listening for quite some time. And even though I have removed my subscription from many other podcasts that I've started and stopped listening to, uh, I've stayed subscribed to Nasilicast. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Bart. And I wish you all the best. Ryan, you brought tears to my eyes when I heard this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If there's anything at all good to say about these times, it's that people are getting really creative at coming up with new ways for humans to interact. Sure, a Zoom video call over cocktails isn't quite the same as real life, but you know what? It's a solution we simply didn't enjoy a few years ago, so the innovations have been really cool. In that vein, one of the saddest things to have canceled for me was MaxDoc Expo in Chicago. This is one of the highlights of my year. The only one of these that I've ever missed was the year my darling grandson was supposed to be born on the same day as the show, and even then, I still did my presentation over Skype. It was kind of sad, though. From my perspective, it went great, and only later on did I find out that the internets and the conference center weren't up to the task, and nobody heard what I was saying. Oh, well, I thought I rocked it. There are two reasons to go to MaxDoc Expo. Of course, this amazing quality of the speakers and their presentations, but the other is for all of the side conversations that happen. During every break, you can simply sit down at any random table and you'll meet new people who love the Mac and the iPhone and the iPad, and they're all hoping to tell you about a new app or a new method of taming their devices. Horror stories are shared, successes are analyzed, and new friends are made. This year, like many conferences, MacStock will be virtual. But here's why that's a cool thing. No matter where you live, and no matter your budget, you can attend for free. If you previously purchased a ticket to MaxDoc 2020 before it was canceled, that ticket is going to get you into MaxDoc 2021, and it means you're already registered for virtual MaxDoc 2020. Now, if you haven't yet registered for MaxDoc 2020, the virtual version, there's a link to register to it for free in the show notes. Now, the conference is only going to be five hours long instead of three days, which actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's really hard to sit in front of a computer screen for three days. That would would be really annoying. But the speakers so far that I know of are Mike Schmitz, Brittany Smith, Jay Miller, Chuck Joyner, Josh Wrench, Ellie Newman, or L. Newman, sorry, and Brett Terpstra, and Joe Bullig, and me. Now, I know some of these names, and the ones I do know are amazing speakers with a lot of interesting stuff to tell you, so I assume the people I don't know will be amazing as well. 
The presentations will be pre-recorded, and then the speakers will be available in the virtual conference in order to answer Q&A. I think that's going to work great, giving us kind of a combination of slickly edited videos, but still the interactivity of uh, the Q&A sessions. Each session is only going to be 20 minutes long, which I think for a virtual conference is just right. The talks will be available online for seven days after the show for registered attendees, even the free registrants, and they'll be available indefinitely for the paid res registrants to MaxDoc 2021. By the way, if you want to, you can purchase a ticket to MaxDoc 2021 at 2020 prices right now. All right, now what about the second part of why MaxDoc is so amazing? What about the small group discussions we have when we're in MeetSpace? Well, Mike Potter and Marina Eppelman, who is one of the coolest, most interesting people I've ever met at MaxDoc, they've come up with a really interesting solution. Now, I can't speak to the details, but yesterday, Steve and I got to participate in a test run of a web service that might just give us some of those spontaneous discussions. So close your eyes and try to picture this, unless you're driving or riding your bike or walking. Just anyway, work with me here. Imagine you're in a virtual room with the other attendees, and if someone is close to you, their voice becomes louder in your headphones, and you can tell the direction they're coming from but the crowds farther away from you have faded to a dim murmur. With your keyboard or mouse, you can move around the meeting space, say, wandering over to the swimming pool where Brett Terpster is talking about a new automation idea he has, or over to the fountain where Frank Petrie is discussing his next pledge break idea. The service they're using is called High Fidelity. This service is currently in beta, and it's open for anyone to sign up for a free space. There's no indication of what it might cost when it leaves beta, but Mike's interactions with support have been quick and responsive, so it seems like it's a really fun way to experiment with for the show. When we went in there, the interface took a few minutes to get used to, but in the half hour or so we tested with maybe a dozen people, very naturally these real side conversations came up. I remember one was about the benefits of lightweight cat litter. Now, you can tell that that's the kind of conversation that just organically happens when you meet people in real life, not being all official online. Well, there's definitely some accessibility problems with the high-fidelity interface. Mike has forwarded the issues to the developers, but assuming they can't change the code this close to the conference, here's what you're going to need to do. If you're using VoiceOver, you will definitely need sighted assistance to push the initial play button on the site. I know that's a terrible thing to tell you, but that's what's going to have to happen until they get it fixed. Once you they push the, the play button for you, there's going to be a section where you get to pick your microphone and headphones, and if they aren't chosen properly, you are going to need a sighted user to fix that for you too. But the good news is that after that, you can absolutely navigate independently using the same keystrokes everyone else will be using. Now, it might not be obvious who you're moving near, but you know what? That's the fun of MaxDoc anyway, is to meet people that you don't already know. I hope this virtual meeting space will work as well with a larger group as it did with the small group. Um, but there is one thing, is there the number of people he can let into the uh, virtual uh, high fidelity space is going to be limited. So not everybody's going to be able to get in, but hopefully it'll be big enough for most people who want to get into there to go. In any case, I'm really looking forward to virtual MaxDoc, and I'll be there the whole time, and I really hope you consider attending too. Again, you can check it out at the link in the show notes. 
you can't actually get to it from max.conferenceandexpo.com. So go look for the link in the show notes, or if you're listening in your podcatcher, there's a link directly to the virtual MaxDoc 2020 there as well. I hope to see you at MaxDoc. If you've already got a $450 Heil PR40 Big Girl mic, you're in good shape for doing audio from home. But if you're using your AirPods because you don't own a grown-up microphone, maybe you should consider a different alternative. I'd like to suggest you take a look at the Shure Digital Recording Kit for $200 from Sweetwater that includes the $54 Shure PGA58 Cardioid Dynamic Microphone. As you might have been able to figure out, those three sentences were read to you using the very microphones I was describing. I know it's been challenging to find reasonably priced but good quality audio and video equipment because literally overnight everyone on earth needed just those same tools. I've been giving some of my friends a really hard time for their poor audio quality, like Rod Simmons of the SMR podcast, for example, but it's hard to be too rough on them when they can't get good equipment. I stumbled across the Sure kit and realized it might make a great setup for those looking for a simple setup with all of the tools to get reasonably good audio. The problem I set out to solve was that I needed to replace my trusty Sure MVI USB interface. This lovely little device does two important jobs for me. One is that it takes the XLR input from my fancy pants microphone and transforms the analog signal into a digital signal so I can plug it into my Mac over USB. The second and almost as important job it does is that it gives me a mute switch. I use this mute switch all day long. If I need to move my mic while recording with someone or maybe I need to open a drawer or I hear a truck going by outside while the other person is talking, I can mute and then come back when the sound is gone. The Shure MVI fits in the palm of your hand. It's just a tiny, cute little device and it does its job beautifully. I don't use this option myself, but the Shure MVI will also allow you to connect a big girl microphone to your mobile phone. It comes with a micro USB to lightning cable for iPhones, and you can download the free Shure Plus Motifs recording software for both iOS and Android. As I said, the Shure MVI does exactly what I need. But you know what? She's been listening to me yak for probably close to a decade now, and I was starting to hear some clicks when I was recording, and I thought maybe it was starting to fail. A replacement Shure MVI is only $130 at Sweetwater, so my initial plan was to, you know, simply replace it with a new one. But you know what? All the cool kids use much fancier interfaces for the microphones. Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab is going all Thunderbolt, and he suggested maybe the problem I was having is that USB just isn't keeping up, and I should get a fancy rig like his. Of course, his setup was way overkill for me. I wanted something super simple like the Shure MVI. I wouldn't mind having two microphone inputs instead of one for doing interviews in person, but it wasn't a strict requirement. I started searching for a simple Thunderbolt interface that wouldn't break the bank. I didn't want to get a Thunderbolt 2 interface because, you know, if I'm upgrading, I might as well go all the way to Thunderbolt 3, right? The only interface I could find that came close to meeting my requirements was a Universal Audio Aero Thunderbolt 3 interface that runs $500 at Sweetwater. Now, while the UA Aero does cost nearly four times the price of the Shure MVI, it is just the prettiest little thing. It's got two XLR inputs on the back and on the front, a really nice looking dial with bright green LEDs for the input gain. There's some other pretty little buttons and a display I don't entirely understand on the front of the UA Aero. 
The big dial with the green LEDs has a mute function, so yay! I have found the device for me. It does everything I want. It's little, it's simple, it's got a mute switch, yay! Guess what? Pressing the dial while in monitor mode mutes the signal going to your powered speakers. There's no mute option for the inputs on the hardware. I was so bummed. I talked to J.F. Brissett, who is a crazy good audio guy, and he suggested I talk to Kenneth, his contact at Sweetwater. Kenneth was awesome and explained things in good detail to me, which is why all of the links I'm giving you are from Sweetwater. He was absolutely lovely. We went back and forth quite a bit about my requirements, and he made several suggestions. Unfortunately, they really did tend to be overkill for what I needed. He was very patient with me as he explained a lot of the jargon around audio, but it was still more, more than I wanted all of these devices. The weird thing to me is that between Kenneth and me, we could not find a Thunderbolt interface that had a physical mute switch like the Shure MVI. They expect you to mute using the fancy and capable software they ship with these interfaces. I can mute with SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba today if I want, but I have so much already on screen when I'm recording that the idea of keeping SoundSource pinned open too, it's kind of a non-starter. The sexy UA Arrow has its own software that includes a mute option, along with a lot of high-end capabilities, but I just couldn't see giving up that physical switch. Kenneth and JF explained that some people use a mute block, which is another piece of hardware that you put in line with the microphone. I looked at a lot of them and they were all, as my father would say, ugly as sin. They also fell into two camps, both of which had downsides. One kind did a true mute, cutting off the signal, but reviewers complained that they made a click when you hit the button. Well, if your objective is to get rid of clicks, that doesn't sound like a good option. The other type of mute block merely attenuates the signal, so the sound is still there, but it's much quieter. I don't understand why none of these devices can do what the Shure MVI can do. In the end, I decided to simply buy another trusty Shure MVI. Since Kenneth had been so swell, and I'm still pouting at Amazon about pulling my associate's account, I of course decided to buy from Sweetwater. I hadn't bookmarked the Shure MVI on the Sweetwater website, so I searched again at Sweetwater for the Shure MVI, and that's when I stumbled across the Shure digital recording kit I mentioned way back at the very beginning. The full recording kit I'm going to tell you about costs only $200, so it's 70 bucks more than the Shure MVI interface by itself. This kit includes an XLR microphone, the XLR cable you'll need to connect it, and a pair of headphones along with the Shure MVI. The microphone included in the Shure digital recording kit is the Shure PGA58 dynamic cardioid microphone you heard me using up front. That model number might sound a tiny bit familiar to you. A year ago, I wrote an article that explained how I bought two Shure SM58S microphones for use as road mics with my Zoom H4n Pro. So the question is, how does the Shure PGA58 compare to the Shure SM58 I already have? The first difference I want to point out is the price. The SM58S, the version with the on-off switch that I bought, is $104. The PGA58, which also has an on-off switch, is only $54 if you buy it by itself at Sweetwater. Let's listen to those two mics back to back. This is the SM58. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. This is the Shure PGA58. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, 
a Technology Geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Okay, you can tell the difference between those two mics, but would you say that the SM58 was twice as good as the PGA58? If you do think it's worth twice the price, you might want to buy the SM58 and the Shure MVI interface separately. I found an article from Shure explaining the difference between the two microphones, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to know more. The PGA58 comes with a nice little carrying case and a 15-foot XLR cable. 15 feet is really long, which I guess is swell if you're dancing around the room, I suppose, but I actually would have preferred something more in the maybe 6-foot or shorter category. Luckily, I have shorter cables. I looked it up, and the least expensive 15-foot XLR cable Sweetwater sells is around 15 bucks. But again, you get that for free. Or included, I should say. The final piece of the kit is this a set of Shure SRH240A headphones. That really rolls off the tongue. Anyway, these over-the-ear headphones are quite comfortable, and to be honest, Steve and I both preferred the sound and especially the bass response when listening to music versus my Bose over-the-ear headphones that I normally use. The SRH240As run $54 by themselves at Sweetwater. I'm not saying these headphones are going to blow you away because... Uh, but you know what? They're closed back. They fit the need of blocking external sound. They'll allow you to monitor your own voice through the Shure MVI, and they're comfortable to wear for long periods of time. So the bottom line is if you add up the price of the MVI interface, the PGA58 microphone, the Shure SRH240A headphones, and the XLR cable, you're getting $253 worth of equipment for only 200 bucks. Now, that's really not much money to make your audio podcast or even your voice on Zoom calls sound a lot better to the people who listen to you. So I have a couple more things to add to this epically long story that started with me needing to replace the USB interface, the Shure MVI. First of all, replacing the Shure MVI did not get rid of the clicks on my audio, so it wasn't broken in the first place. Kenneth had wondered before I even bought the, the replacement whether maybe it was audio hijack. Now, you know Audio Hijack is my single favorite app on my Mac, so I wasn't going to toss it out. But Kenneth's question made me remember that there's a slider on the app for how it performs when you monitor your own voice through it. The slider goes from lower latency to better performance. I've had it set on lower latency for as far back as I can remember, but when I slid it up to better performance, it seems to have gotten rid of the clicks. Now, that does mean that my voice is delayed a lot when I'm monitoring it versus when I'm talking, and that makes it much harder to actually talk. I'm really bummed about this, and I'm going to blame the new 16-inch MacBook Pro because I did not have this clicking problem on the 15-inch from 2016. Now, remember the very beginning of the story when I told you the cool kids are using uh, Thunderbolt interfaces? Guess why they use Thunderbolt? To lower latency. I may have to go back to the drawing board on this whole issue. Now for the second part. I thought the new Shure MVI that came with the kit that I got with my kit was actually defective. The problem I had was that I had to crank my system input volume to 100%, thereby introducing noise in my recordings, in order to meet the audio levels I had with my old Shure MVI, which I could keep set at 30%. I did a bunch of experiments swapping them on my Mac to identify the issue to define that it definitely was that new one that was causing the problem. And then I thought, all right, maybe I should test it on Steve's computer to definitively eliminate all other variables. Steve also uses a Shure MVI for his XLR mic as well. When I sat down to play at his Mac, 
I noticed he had the input on his existing Shure MVI set to 100%. I asked him about it, and he said that he had to start cranking it up a few months ago. Now I'm wondering whether that dumpster fire of an operating system Catalina is to blame. Anyway, I figured out how to solve this problem where we didn't have to have our input volume set to 100%. I did a bunch of the Googles, and I couldn't find anyone else with this problem, but I did find the user manual for the Shure MVI. It did not tell me the answer, but it gave me one very interesting clue. It talked about how you can control different equalizer, compressor, and limiter settings, and that they are stored in the hardware of the MVI. Now, how the heck would I tell the hardware about EQ compression and limiter settings? There's not like little buttons on the front that does that. But that's when I remembered something I told you way back at the very beginning of this story. The Shure MVI can be used with a smartphone and it has the Shure Plus Motive recording software. I plugged my iPhone into the new Shure MVI, launched the Motive software, and started poking around in the settings, and I discovered a setting that said, plus 20 dB mic gain boost. I quit the app, unplugged the phone, plugged the new Shure MVI back into my Mac, and now I can set my input volume on my Mac to a very reasonable 30%. I went back to Steve's Mac, repeated the same procedure on his Shure MVI with my phone, and now his input is set back to 30% too. Now, I really thought I was going to have to end this story by saying, no, really, this is a good kit. Mine was just broken. So I'm really happy to be able to end the story with a 100% endorsement of the Shure Digital Recording Kit from Sweetwater for $200. However, I don't need it now. So I have sold it to Rod Simmons of the SMR podcast because I am so tired of listening to his uh, recordings that he does with his AirPods Pro. This week's hero is John Murray III. Why is he our hero? Because he became a patron of the PodFeed podcast. He went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and he created an account. From there, he got to decide exactly how much money he wanted to pledge. Now, in setting up my Patreon, I chose to have pledges be per episode only of the NoSillacast. So you get everything else for free, but but the billing goes on the on the NoSillacast episodes. So let's say you put in $2, you'd be charged, you know, around eight bucks per month, depending on how many Sundays there are in a month. But what if John had wanted to limit his cost to say $5 a month and he wouldn't have to do some crazy math? Well, it turns out there's two radio buttons, one to support every creation, as I explained, but he could have also chosen to set a monthly limit. With a show as consistent as the NoSillacast, he can be pretty confident that it's going to be once a week, so he's got predictable costs, but some shows are more intermittent, so setting a limit can be a great way to go. The other cool thing is that let's say John decides at some point that he can't afford to continue his pledges. He is in complete control and can stop contributing. It's all about John and what he wants and what he can afford to contribute. I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon like John and be my hero. You know how we all keep trying different task management tools in the hope that one of them will help us be the productivity champion we envision we can be? Well, the same thing happens with note-taking apps. We keep looking for that holy grail that will help us organize all of our thoughts. I've tried so many different apps that it's embarrassing. For a long time, I mocked myself for this, but over the years, I think I've actually settled on, wait for it, five different apps that solve all of my note-taking challenges. I always envisioned that there should be one note-taking app to rule them all, but it turns out I have many different requirements and that each tool has its own benefits. 
The five apps I've settled on are Ulysses, Keep It, Notability, Google Docs, and Notes. I want to walk through each one and explain the problems they solve and why they're my go-to for that specific problem. Most of my blog posts start now in Ulysses from Ulysses.app. My preferred blogging tool is actually MarsEdit from red-sweater.com, but unfortunately it's only available on the Mac, and I'm finding it quite pleasurable to write on my iPad Pro with the new Magic Keyboard. MarsEdit will still be in my workflow because it makes it so easy to drop in images and have the correct styling to add captions for clarity, and it provides a preview with my own theme so I can see how things look before posting to podfeet.com. I can set my categories and my tags. It's, it's something I absolutely love. I probably wouldn't be using Ulysses if MarsEdit was cross-platform. Ulysses, though, supports Markdown language, which has become more and more appealing over time for me. Markdown is more human-readable than writing in HTML, and since MarsEdit supports Markdown, I can export the files to MarsEdit from uh, Ulysses and just keep working on the post pretty seamlessly. Probably one of the main reasons I like Ulysses on iPad for writing blog posts is that I'm less distracted on the iPad. I know it's possible to be distracted by notifications when using an iPad, But in general, having just the one app up at a time and making it fill the screen so there's no sidebar in Ulysses, that kind of keeps my brain in one place. Another reason Ulysses is perfect for my blog post writing is that it supports the beloved text expander. I use a zillion text expander snippets when I'm writing for podfeet.com, and that makes Ulysses far more productive than any other writing app on my iPad. All of this makes a compelling argument to use Ulysses for the first draft of my blog post using my iPad, but the icing on the cake is that Ulysses syncs really quickly, most of the time, back to my Mac. I can finish a draft on the iPad and move it to MarsEdit on my Mac to do the heavy lifting. Now, I make one mistake virtually every time I move the file from Ulysses to MarsEdit. I do a select all in Ulysses, I copy, I switch to MarsEdit, and I hit paste. It's only halfway through editing that I realized that that method borked all of the markdown links I created so carefully in Ulysses. The right way to export from Ulysses is to use the little share icon and change the dropdown to show markdown as the format and then copy the text and plop it in a Mars edit. Ulysses also supports exporting directly to WordPress, which is pretty awesome, but since I definitely want to complete the work in Mars edit, I don't actually use that feature. I guess I could export to WordPress and then I could go back to MarsEdit and do a refresh, which would pull it back down from WordPress, but eh, copy-paste, right? One reason people like to write a plain text editor like Ulysses is that you simply can't do things that distract you from the actual writing, like embedding images. Personally, I find that embedding images as I go along helps me write a more cohesive story, so I do still prefer working in MarsEdit when I'm on my Mac. Ulysses for iPadOS, iOS, and macOS is $6 per month US. But if you've been looking for a way to justify getting a setup subscription, look no further. The thing that got me to start using Ulysses was that I was already paying 9 bucks a month for setup, and it includes Ulysses. While Ulysses used to cost $25 on the iPad and $50 on the Mac, the setup subscription actually covers both platforms, so I feel like I'm getting it for free with my setup subscription. I use an application called KeepIt from reinventedsoftware.com to store many kinds of notes, not my blog posts. KeepIt's main strength is that it stores every kind of data, not just text files, but audio, video, images, and more. 
It stores all of these things not in some arcane database, but rather right in the finder. Keep it uses every kind of tagging, categorizing, folderizing, metadata, smart album method you can think of. In a way, I feel kind of like it's a super finder. Now, this doesn't fit in the note-taking app category, but I keep a copy of all the logos for all of the shows I do and the audio intro and outro clips for them and keep it because I find it's easier and faster to find them and keep it than it is to find them in the finder. So the note-taking app I do and keep it seems to have evolved to being specifically notes about programming. Let's say Jill sends me one of her fantastic explanations of some programming concept I've been struggling with on Programming by Stealth. The very first thing I do is move a copy into a keep it in a folder called PBS. If I'm working on a project and I find some code or maybe a library that's helpful to my programming, I copy the link for it to keep it in the field called source. And then I put in the explanation of how I used it so that I can remind future me how I solved that problem. I tag the heck out of it to give future me a good chance I can find it later. It's critical that keep it is for things I want to keep, right? Things I want to find later. It's, it's long-term storage of really good information for me. Helma recently helped me wrap my head around how to merge branches in Git. It's a nerdy programming thing. And I immediately wrote up my understanding of the conversation in keep it so I could refer back to it later. We use Memo Live to broadcast the live show, as you see it at podfeet.com slash live. And I send my video and audio to Steve for the production using Chrome. We've been struggling lately with my computer not being able to keep up with the task, even though it's a brand new 8-core Intel i9 with 64 gigabytes of RAM and the fastest GPU Apple puts in their laptops. We just figured out last week, thanks to Mike Price in the live chat, that there's a toggle in Chrome for whether to use hardware acceleration. And for some reason, toggling that off fixed the problem we were having. You can bet I dropped his explanation and the link about it right into Keep It immediately so the next time it happens after a clean install or an update to Chrome, I'll be able to retrieve the solution. Again, I tag the daylights out of it so I can find it. JF Brissett, the editor of my videos for Screencast Online, was helping me try to eliminate some plosives on my microphone. Plosives are when you pop your peas. I have a pop filter, but saying Patreon of the Podfeet Podcast, or Patreon of the Podfeed podcast is just too much for it to filter out. JF explained that adding an audio unit high pass filter into Audio Hijack set to the right frequency can actually eliminate the plosives. That's, by the way, why when I was speaking normally and saying Patreon of the Podfeed podcast, you did not hear those plosives. One of the great things about Keep It is that it supports many text formats, including RTF or rich text format. That means I could copy and paste. JF's instructions and to keep it and paste in a screenshot of Audio Hijack so I can remember exactly what it should look like. My programming notes, on the other hand, tend to be in plain text or markdown because I have no need for graphics in those. Again, the flexibility of keep it and the ability to tag the notes is what makes me put the things I need to remember in keep it. I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to keep it to find something I needed. If I truly need to remember something and refer back to it later, my tool of choice is Keep It with apps for the Mac, iOS, and iPadOS. Next up is Notability from gingerlabs.com. This fills the need of a place to capture all of my handwritten notes. It has way more capability than that. You can type in it. You can record audio. So you combine your own notes and what was being said when you wrote those notes. You can organize documents and notebooks and so much more. But I almost exclusively use Notability for writing by hand. 
I wrote an article a while ago entitled, Write by Hand When You Need to Think. And in it, I explained that there is something about writing by hand that helps me think. If I'm typing, I can't help but edit typos and structure sentences properly. I find myself formatting text as well. All of these things stop my brain from being creative. The main place I need to be creative is in programming. If I try to type in code to outline an unformed idea, I have to get it exactly right. A command misspelled or a special character misplaced is going to bork the whole thing. But if I'm just trying to structure an idea, I can scribble it in what they call pseudocode in Notability, and I get the idea out of my brain quickly. One of the reasons handwriting and Notability is so useful is that I can lasso a chunk of text and move it around. It's really often I get an idea down, but I realize, oh, I need to put something in between these two ideas. I could grab the one idea and move it around to make space. I am also very fond of the eraser tool as I have a lot of trouble writing by hand so that, you know, even I can read it. With a pen and paper, it's really a mess, but with notability, if my hand kind of spasms and I write gibberish, I can quickly drag across and delete what I've written. Now, importantly, the eraser is not a pixel eraser. It's an object eraser. So if you touch a bit of script text, it selects all of it. If I mess up a whole chunk of what I've written, I can lasso it, tap and hold, and then delete that whole thing. Now, I found something really awesome about writing in Notability. You can change the color and texture of the background of the virtual paper, and it turns out a dark blue background with lines on it is absolutely delightful to write on. One of the reasons it's so delightful is that almost any color shows up as though it's a fluorescent gel pen. All but the very darkest color options look really great. I use the different colors when I'm changing what I'm writing about. I may work on one part of the code for a while, jotting down ideas, scribbling red asterisks to remind myself that one idea might work, but then I jump to another part of the project, and I can clearly see the difference because I switch from bright blue to bright pink. I also use Notability to write letters to people. Because we do so much communication via email, a handwritten letter to someone can be a lovely gesture. A handwritten thank you note, a letter to see how someone's doing, or just to brighten someone's day really stands out as being something special. Recently, the grandmother of someone I know fell and broke her hip and she was depressed and couldn't do anything for a while. I didn't know her particularly well, but I hand wrote a letter to her chatting about her great granddaughter and other things to cheer her up. I learned later, and later that it made her very happy. I could write a cute note on notepaper, but did I mention how my hands have a lot of trouble writing legibly and consistently lately? It's way too hard on real paper. So instead, I pop up a notability, I write in maybe a dark blue on a light-colored background that makes me happy, I turn on the lines so my handwriting doesn't slide down on the page to the right like some kind of psychopath. Then I, when I'm done crafting the letter and even editing it, I change the paper to white, I turn off the lines, and then I print it on my regular printer. I then have a letter that looks to most people like I wrote with a blue pen on real paper, but in fact, it was created electronically. Now, iPadOS 14 will have a feature called Scribble that lets you write by hand and then convert it to typewritten text. Guess what? Notability already has that and has had it for a long time. Both Scribble and Notability do this in pretty much the same way. With iPadOS 14, you can select handwritten text just as though it was typewritten by tapping and dragging across the writing. Then you can copy as text and paste somewhere else. With Notability, use the lasso to select it, then tap to convert it to text. This pops up a window showing you what it thinks you wrote, which is cool because you get a chance to edit the text if it misinterpreted what you wrote. 
From there, you can either paste it elsewhere or replace the handwritten note with text. Even with this awesome capability, I have to confess, I don't actually use it because my handwritten notes are more useful to me. Visually, they mean more to me as I scribbled them than if they were text. Now, I actually have the best of both worlds leaving them as is because Notability does optical character recognition of your handwritten notes, which means they're actually searchable. Even with pen womanship that would make a second grade teacher cringe, Notable still seems to understand what I write. I haven't even begun to tell you everything Notability does, but check it out at gingerlabs.com. There's even apps for iOS and macOS, and there's a 25% off sale going on while I'm writing this up. I love Notability, and I find it indispensable for writing when I want to figure something out. The last category of writing I do is a kind where I'm collaborating with someone else. Far and away, the most reached for tool in this category is Google Docs. Virtually every chit-chat across the pond you hear was outlined in a Google Doc by me, shared with the person I'm interviewing, and usually they have edited and added to the information as well. To pull back the curtain a wee bit, it's how I have honed my skills of interviewing to sound like I just naturally asked the question the interviewee was hoping to answer. Bet you thought I was just naturally insightful, didn't you? Nope, it's all staged. Well, anyway, Google Docs is perfect for this task because it's cross-platform. It's a format most people are immediately comfortable with, even if they've been using Microsoft Office their entire online lives. And it's getting harder and harder to find someone who doesn't have a Google-connected account. I also like that I can write up the notes before they see it, then simply hit the share button, create a link that gives them the edit privileges they'll need. No finding it in shared folders or any faffing about like that. Now, I pay for Microsoft 365 that comes with OneDrive, but you know what? It falls over in a heap at ease of use on sharing documents every time I try it. Now, since many of my conversations are with Apple-centric people, you might ask, why don't you use Apple Notes for collaborative writing? I actually have done it in the past, but I do it only when I'm sure the person I'm interviewing is a hardcore Apple user, not just someone who happens to have an iPhone or a Mac. For example, when people like Lori Gill of iMore or Rosemary Orchard who's crazy about shortcuts or Adam Enks who spent literally the last 30 years writing about Apple tools comes on the show, there's really no reason not to use Apple Notes to collaborate with them. I say no reason, but I would say that sharing a link with Google Docs is still way easier than with Apple Notes. But you know what? Once we've cracked the code, it works quite nicely with other Apple-minded people. One thing I've noticed about Apple Notes is that I only put stuff in there that I don't really care about referencing later. For example, I do take my notes for things like WWDC and Apple Notes, but you know, after a week or so, that content actually doesn't matter to me. If I truly care about capturing something to reference it later, I'll b- be putting it in Keep It. Ulysses is that way too. I write the first draft of my blog posts in a folder called Plan Blog Posts, and when I copy it to Mars Edit, the draft goes into Finished, where I will likely never look at it again. Google Docs for writing is pretty much the same way. I write things there, and I never look at them again. Like I said up front, I really thought a solid plan of one note-taking app to rule them all would eventually congeal for me. But instead, I'm using the best tool for the job at hand. And it turns out all writing isn't the same, so that means five tools to rule them all. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. How do you do that? Email me at allison at podfeed.com. can't believe how many people ask me what my email address is, so I don't think anybody's listening right now. Anyway, you can also follow me on Twitter at podfeed. 
Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to be the hero of the week like John and sign up to become a Patreon? You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Don't want a recurring donation? That's fine. You can give one-time donations at PayPal by going to podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if we want to join in the conversation, you can do that in our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. Or if you're the Facebook persuasion, go to podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.